in chapter 9, we have the conversion now of Saul of Tarsus. And here again is another remarkable conversion. The conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch was in a chariot. Conversion of Saul of Tarsus was actually down in the dust. He probably was riding a little donkey when he went up to Damascus. And he's knocked off that little donkey right down into the dust, as we shall see. Now, as we come to this, will you notice this man, Saul of Tarsus, and his conversion? When we get to Philippians, we're going to look at actually theologically and psychologically and philosophically what actually happened on the Damascus Road. Now, here we're given the facts of what happened on the Damascus Road. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. Now, you see, when the persecution broke out in Jerusalem, it scattered the church. The church went underground, and the apostles remained, and the others were scattered. We find Philip way up in Samaria, as we have seen. And the thing that triggered it, of course, was the persecution. Now, the rest of those religious leaders in Jerusalem were satisfied now. They had run the Christians out of that area, out of Jerusalem. And they're willing to let it stay at that point. But not Saul of Tarsus. Here is one who was breathing out threatenings and slaughter. He hated Jesus Christ. I do not think that the Lord Jesus Christ has ever had an enemy greater than this man Saul of Tarsus. So he went to the chief priests and he said, Look, I've heard a group of them have run off up there to Damascus. I'm going after them. Fact of the matter is, he intended to ferret them out anywhere they went in order to exterminate the Christians. Now, will you notice verse 3? And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, who art thou, Lord? Now, I want to stop there. We'll have Paul recounting this twice again in Acts. In fact, Paul never tired of telling about his conversion. And we find him again in the epistle to the Philippians, just getting right down to the heart of the matter and tell what really happened to him on the Damascus Road. But here we're given the bare facts, and I'll go over it again especially when he goes before King Agrippa. That is a masterpiece of the Apostle Paul. Now, will you notice here the ignorance of Paul? He probably the most brilliant man of his day. He was probably a graduate of the University of Tarsus, the greatest Greek university of the day. And he was in the school of Gamaliel, the man that had religion, but he did not know the Lord Jesus Christ, who art thou, Lord? And friends, to know him is life. And he didn't know him. The Lord said, I'm Jesus, whom thou persecutest. 
It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise. You see, he was right down in the dust on that Damascus road. And the Lord says to him, Arise, go into the city. It shall be told thee what thou shall do. Now you have this very remarkable story given to us here, the account the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. He immediately now reveals he's converted because the man who hated him did everything against him. He says now, he calls him Lord, and he says to him, what will you have me to do? I'm ready to do your bidding now. He's really converted. By their fruits ye shall know them, and you can sure tell what's happened to this man. Now will you note verse 7, And the man which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. Now later on we'll find out that they didn't hear. And somebody says, well, but it says here they heard a voice. Well, that's all they heard was a voice. They were speechless, and the voice didn't make sense to them. They could not understand what was said. All they heard was a noise. But they didn't see any man at all. There was no one for them to see. Now, we are going to come back to that again in the 22nd chapter and again in the 26th chapter. And at that time, I'll go over this again with you because I do think it's rather important. But the facts are what we're after now. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were open, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand, brought him into Damascus. He's blinded, of course, by the light that he had seen from heaven. And he was three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. If there ever was a man puzzled, this man was. Now, a great many people, when they're converted, they jump up and down. They shout for joy, but not Saul of Tarsus. There never was a man as confused as he was. Had you met him in one of those three days in Damascus, he would have told you, or he might have asked you the question, what in the world has happened to me? I don't know. Well, he's going to find out. Verse 10, There was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Behold, I'm here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the street, which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth, and hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in, putting his hand on him, that he might receive his sight. Now we come to the conversion of this man, Saul of Tarsus. A remarkable conversion, of course. And I know that there are those that are going to ask the question. They say, now you believe that there is required the Holy Spirit working through the Word of God and through the man of God. And we wonder how they fit in with the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Well, to begin with, the Lord Jesus appears to him. But you remember the Lord himself said before he left, he said, that he was going away. I'll not leave you orphans. And that one of the things the Spirit of God would do, in fact, the thing, would be he'd take the things of Christ and show them unto you. 
Now, I think the Spirit of God, at the time that the Lord Jesus appeared to Saul, opened his eyes spiritually and closed them physically, that he might see the Lord Jesus. So the Holy Spirit was definitely at work. And somebody says, yes, but the Word of God. Well, here's a man who is a Pharisee. He knows a great deal about the Word of God. There ever was anyone saturated with it was Saul of Tarsus. And later on in writing the epistles, which he did, he was well-versed in the Old Testament and the language back there. Now we come to the one that I know someone is saying, yes, that may be true of these two, but you also say that God always uses a human instrument. Now, there was no human instrument at the conversion of Paul or of Saul. Well, if you understood me to mean that the human instrument has to be present at that very moment, well, then certainly there was no human instrument present there. But there was a human instrument. You remember I called attention to the fact that the early church was really a youth movement. There was this young Stephen and there was young Saul. They only met at one time and they were enemies. And you remember that this man Stephen said, I see heaven open and Jesus standing there. And Saul of Tarsus looked up and he said, I don't see anything. But he looked into the face of Stephen and he knew he was seeing something. And Saul said, he has something I don't have. I hope I can see the heaven open and see someone. And he did. The human instrument was Stephen, you see. I believe there's a human instrument in the conversion of every individual. And that's the reason that you and I ought to cast our influence for Jesus Christ. Now, I read a letter. I think it's the most remarkable letter of a barber up north. One day, this man came into his shop. He'd been coming for 20 years This was the last time he came because apparently he died right after that suddenly. This man, when he got out of the chair paying for his haircut, he said to this man, have you ever heard Dr. McGee on the radio? And he said, no. And he went over to the man's radio and turned to the station we're on. He said, eight o'clock every morning you listen to him. And that barber began listening to us. And you know what's happened to him. There was a human instrument in the man's life, you see. There's a human instrument, friends, in the life of every individual. I heard Dr. Chaffer once say that when he was praying with Dr. C.I. Schofield. Now, Dr. Schofield, before his conversion, was an international lawyer, outstanding, but a very heavy drinker. And so... He had a godly mother, and his godly mother prayed for him. And she died and never never knew that C.I. Schofield was converted. But in this prayer that he prayed, he and Dr. Schaefer were praying together, he said, Lord, he said, if my mother doesn't know that I've been converted, would you mind telling her? <laughs> May I say to you, friends, I don't think you can have a conversion without a human instrument And why don't you be a human instrument? That doesn't mean that you got to go and witness and get them down on their knees or get them to sign a card or to go forward. It just means that you see that Jesus Christ gets in the presence of the individual, that the Word of God is given out. 
That's the important thing today. And you're not going to have a conversion, a real conversion, without the man of God using the Word of God directed by the Spirit of God. And so we have that in the conversion of this man. Now, he's led, brought into Damascus, in the street called Straight, and poor Saul of Tarsus, brilliant young man that he was, is still a little bit confused. And then the Spirit of God appeared unto Ananias there, and he sent him over. Let me begin reading. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he's a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Now, there are two reasons that God says he called this man, that he was a chosen vessel for two reasons. The first reason is he was to bear the name of Jesus. Now, do you notice he's not really called a witness here? Because Paul never knew him in the days of his flesh, probably at the crucifixion. But he knew nothing about him until he met him on the road to Damascus. Now he's to bear that name. And that is the name that we are to bear today, the name of Jesus, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. He'll go before three different groups. Gentiles, that'll be number one, and kings. And he'll appear before kings, probably before Nero. And then the nation Israel. And Paul always went into a city and began in the synagogue. The synagogue was his springboard that put him into the community, into the life of the city, and enabled him to reach Gentiles. Now, that's the first thing. The second thing, he says, I'm going to show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. He's to suffer for me. And no one's ever suffered, in my judgment, as much as Paul the Apostle suffered. So much so that it forbids us today, I can't say, oh, I'm suffering more than anyone else. Why does God let this happen to me? And the Lord would just have you and me know today, he'd have us know, well, you think you are suffering. You have not suffered near what Saul of Tarsus suffered, who became Paul the Apostle. Now notice what took place. Verse 17, And Ananias went his way, entered into the house, and putting his hands on him, said, Brother Saul. What a change. He's still Saul of Tarsus, but he's now Brother Saul. He's not the enemy. Now he's Brother Saul. And any person who knows Jesus Christ is a brother to anyone else. But the brethren don't always act like they're brethren. Now notice, Brother Saul... The Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, 
hath sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Two things he was to receive now, his physical sight, and also he's to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, will you notice something that's very important? The filling is something for service. It's the experience. It's that which reveals itself in the life of a believer. He was baptized by the Holy Spirit on the Damascus Road. He was saved on the Damascus Road. But it wasn't until this man came to him that he was filled with the Holy Spirit because he's going to become a witness for the Lord Jesus. And he receives his physical sight and his spiritual sight. Now notice verse 18 of chapter 9 of Acts. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he received sight forthwith, and arose, and was baptized. Now, baptized by water. <laughs> he received the baptism of the Holy Spirit yonder on the Damascus Road. He's now baptized. He was saved on the Damascus Road. He now is baptized by water, which is a sign and seal of his conversion. But the water had nothing to do with his salvation at all. He'd been saved on the Damascus road. Now notice again, verse 19, "...and when he had received meat, he was strengthened. Then was Saul certain days with the disciples which were at Damascus, and straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues." Now this man Saul of Tarsus begins immediately the witness. Why? He's filled with the Holy Spirit. And he began to preach Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Now, friends, you have to know who he is before you can believe what he did. He died for your sin, and it's because he's the Son of God is the reason he could die for your sins. I couldn't die for your sins. And you couldn't die for mine. I can't die for my own. <laughs> no other human being can. You've got to know that he's the Son of God. And this is where Paul began. Verse 21, But all that heard him were amazed and said, Is not this he that destroyed them which called on the name in Jerusalem, and came hither for that intent that he might bring them bound unto the chief priests? But Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ, the very Messiah. Now, this man, Saul of Tarsus, also, he's number one in several departments, number one in suffering, number one as a missionary, and I think number one as far as his IQ is concerned. He was a brilliant man. He was able to confound those that uh, attempted to tackle him intellectually. Now, verse 23, And after that many days were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel to kill him. You know, when you can't win your argument, then the other way is to eliminate the enemy. Verse 24, But their laying await was known of Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night 
led him down by the wall in a basket. Now, that was a very thrilling experience, I'm sure, to be let down in the wall in a basket. But you never read anywhere in the New Testament, nor is there any record that Paul ever gave a lecture on the subject over the wall in a basket. And that ought to be a lesson for a great many today who deal in sensationalism to recognize that here is a man that's had a most remarkable experience, but he doesn't go around over the Roman Empire talking on about going over the wall in a basket. And I think he could have, but he's presenting something else. Never let our experience get in the way of presenting Christ. Never let our person get in the way of presenting Christ. I hear sometimes the prayer today, it's very pious, hide the preacher back of the cross. Oh, no, friends, that's not it. Help the preacher to present Christ in such a way that the Spirit of God can take the things of Christ and show them unto us. None of this business are hiding him back of the cross. No, help him to present Christ. That is the important thing in these days and has been now for 1,900 years. Now, will you notice verse 26? And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. They thought this was a deception on the part of Saul of Tarsus. See, that he was worming his way in. And they had had a little experience, you know, with those that had wormed their way in. Simon the sorcerer, you remember we have seen him. And they didn't know what tactic that this man was using. But notice, good old Barnabas, the son of consolation and comfort. Verse 27, I'm reading. But Barnabas took him, brought him to the apostles, declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way, and that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. Barnabas sponsors him now. Barnabas comes over and puts his arm around him, and what a blessing he was to him. And that's another ministry that a great many have had, putting their arm around some new Christian and helping that new Christian along. That is a needed ministry today. Now notice verse 28. He was with them coming in and going out at Jerusalem. Now Paul gets with the Jerusalem church, you see. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus. He disputed against the Grecians. Now these are not Greeks. They are Israelites who have a Greek background. They were brought up somewhere in the Greek world. But they went about to slay him. In other words, this man was so powerful that the only way they thought they could get rid of him was to eliminate him, to kill him. Verse 30, "...which when the brethren knew, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him forth to Tarsus." Now, Paul goes to his hometown. He goes back home. Goes back, I imagine, to tell Probably his father and his mother and his relatives, his brothers and sisters. We know nothing about them. Paul does not talk about his family at all. Then in verse 31, "...then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit." 
They were multiplied. The church continued to grow. Now, in case, I know that there are some that might be listening to me today, and there are those that always are trying to find some little error that I make, which I'm very happy because I make statements sometimes that sound, I think, different than they might be. I said just a moment ago that we knew nothing about his relatives. Well, we know a little something about his relatives. And we'll find that, for instance, in the epistle to the Romans. He mentions those that were related to him. But we know practically nothing, I should put it like that. Now the gospel has gone into Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. Now it's going to start shortly to the ends of the earth. But we are in this particular period of the ministry. Now we are told it came to pass, as Peter passed throughout all quarters, he came down also to the saints which dwelt at Lydda. And there he found a certain man named Aeneas, which had kept his bed eight years, was sick of the palsy. And Peter said unto him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ maketh thee whole, arise, and make thy bed, and he rose immediately. You see, this man had the signed gift of an apostle, for he was an apostle. Verse 36, Now there was at Joppa a certain disciple named Tabitha, which by interpretation is Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and alms deeds, which she did. Now, she engaged in social service. That was her gift. And it was a gift of the Holy Spirit. And that was the gift of sowing, by the way. Somebody is going to say, you mean to tell me sowing is a gift of the Holy Spirit? Was for this woman. A great many people today, I'm afraid, seeking for some exciting fleshly gift or trying to speak in tongues. Why don't you get something practical And I say it very carefully and kindly today. Dear sister, learn to sow. That's lots better than to just talk and talk so-so. It's better to learn to sow. And that was the gift of this woman here. I doubt whether she ever spoke at a missionary meeting or I doubt whether she ever taught a woman's Bible class. I don't think that she ever did that, but she was one of the early saints. And she did a lot of wonderful things. Verse 37, it came to pass in those days that she was sick and died, whom when they had washed, they laid her in an upper chamber. And you notice how the Christians prepare for burial in that day. And far as much as Lydda was nigh to Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent unto him two men desiring him that he would not delay to come to them. Now, they do expect Simon Peter to raise her from the dead. He has that gift. Verse 39, Then Peter arose and went with them. When he was come, they brought him into the upper chamber, and all the widows stood by him weeping and showing the coats and garments which Dorcas made while she was with them. Now, you'll notice it was the widows that conducted this fashion show. They all were showing off the garments that she made. And why did the widows do it? Well, they were poor. They wouldn't have had any clothes if it hadn't have been for Dorcas. She was the one that sewed for them. And this was her ministry. This was actually a gift of the Holy Spirit. And it was very important. Now, verse 40, "...but Peter put them all forth." 
and kneeled down and prayed, and turning him to the body, said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, presented her alive. Now, here is the exercise of a sign gift. We have in the book of Acts, the historical book of the church, we have the ministry of Simon Peter, an apostle, and of Paul, an apostle. One, a minister to his own people, Simon Peter, and yet he's going to open the door to the Gentiles. Then we have Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul the apostle, and he went to the Gentiles. Now, both of them, we have an instance of both of them raising the dead. It's quite possible they raised others from the dead. But this is the only record, and it's given to us to show that these men had these sign gifts. Now, they could perform miracles. They could heal the sick. They could raise the dead. These were the marks. These were the evidences of an apostle in that day. And they were apostolic gifts. They were the foundation, Paul says, of the church. They are not the foundation in the sense that the church is built on them, but they are the ones who put down the New Testament on which the church is actually built today. Now, we've come to the period where we don't need signed gifts. Signed gifts prove they were apostles. Signed gifts today are not in existence. And they wouldn't prove anything. The important thing today is whether you have the doctrine or not. John wrote probably his last book was one of the epistles he wrote. And he said, if any come to you having not this doctrine, receive him not. Now, I didn't say whether he had sign gifts. Apparently, even then, they were not in evidence. And toward the end of the ministry of Paul, I can show you very definitely, Paul did not exercise the gift of healing, and he had that gift, you must recall. He was an apostle. So that the emphasis now comes to the Word of God, and it comes to the person of Jesus Christ. But now, this establishes, again, the apostleship of Simon Peter. And so, the church is amazed. Verse 42, it was known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Now it came to pass that he tarried many days in Joppa with one Simon, a tanner. Now the tanner, you know, took skins and put them in acid, and it made it rather odoriferous. When I was in Joppa, they show you a house that was the place where Simon Peter stayed and the roof there and all that. It could well be it's a rather picturesque village there right on the water's edge. And this house was right down there. Could well have been the place, because the house looks like it's been there about that long. And this is the place where Simon Peter was staying. Now that brings us to the 10th chapter of the book of Acts. And we have now the conversion of Cornelius, a Roman centurion, who's a son of Japheth. Now, let's look at this. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band. Now, you'll recall that up through this area, Paul had gone, and the apostles had gone preaching the gospel up the coast. And you go from Joppa, you go up from there. Well, Tel Aviv is really a part of old Joppa. 
and then you come on up, and the next place would be Caesarea, that is, of any size. And so there was a centurion in Caesarea. Now, that's the place where Pilate stayed. It was really a Roman city. It was built there, and the governor and those who rule that land stayed there. Now, this man Cornelius is a centurion of the band called the Italian band. Now, we are told certain things about him here. He was a devout man, that's first. That means his worship was rightly directed. He had a recognition of a dependence upon that which was divine. Now, to him it was God's. He was a pagan. And he had a devotion and a deep conviction. That could well be true, you see, of a pagan. You sometimes wish some Christians today had more devotion and conviction. Now, the second thing is said here, a devout man and one that feared God. Now, that means that he was not a proselyte in the strict sense of the term. He would be called that one of the gate. That is, we would say today, he's a man that lives in the neighborhood, attends the church on Easter Sunday and at Christmas time. He is one that is friendly toward the church, but he's not a Christian. This would be this man here. He feared God. Now, the third thing, it says... He gave much alms to the people. Now, he gave much alms. And the nation Israel has always laid great stress upon giving. God had taught them that, you see, back in the Old Testament. Instead of, by the way, giving a tenth, a tithe, I think it's obvious from the Mosaic system that they gave three tenths. You see, they gave for the running of the government because it was a theocracy at the beginning. Then they gave to the temple. Then they gave a tenth of everything that they produced. So that they have been a generous people. And many of these elemosinary foundations today, charitable foundations today, were established by Jews, by the way. And there's no people that are giving today as this nation is giving to the nation of Israel. They are very generous in that connection. You remember the Lord Jesus said to this young man, sell what you have, give to the poor, follow me. You see, the riches of that young man was standing in his way of coming to God, even under the Mosaic system. He could say, I keep the law. He didn't do this and he didn't do the other thing, but he failed to do the thing that he should have done even under the law. And that blocked the way. And he'd have to get over that hurdle before he could come to Christ, you see. And a great many folk today put something ahead of Christ. It doesn't necessarily have to be riches. It can be a business. It can be a sin. It can be a habit. It can be actually a loved one that we put ahead. Now, the fourth thing that is said about Cornelius, he prayed to God. Now, he took his needs to God. He needed to have more light. He just didn't have light, but he prayed. But he didn't know much about prayer, by the way. Now, will you notice what is said about this man? He prayed to God always. In verse 3, he saw in a vision, evidently about the ninth hour of the day, an angel of God coming into him and saying unto him, Cornelius, and this man is a man of influence, you see. We'll see later that 
He had a tremendous influence on his own household. Well, he's an officer in the Roman army, a career officer, and the influence of the man must have been tremendous. Now, he was a good man. To all outward features, he'd pass as a Christian today, a Christian of the highest degree, an outstanding man. But he actually was not a Christian. He's an example of a man who lived up to the light that he had. Now, you'll remember in John 1, 9, that was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Now, this man had never come into the presence of Christ, but what he had, why he had lived up to it. And you remember Paul in writing to the Romans, he had something to say into this connection, that which may be known of God is manifest in them. God hath showed it unto them, the invisible things. He recognized there was a God, but he didn't know him. Actually, he didn't come up to the light that he had. Somebody says, what was the problem then? Well, this man did come up to all the light that was given to him. He seemed to measure up. Now, this man is God's answer to the oft-repeated question. What about the poor pagan and the good heathen who wants to know God? Never had a chance. Is he lost? The answer to that is, God will get light to him. God will enable him to hear the gospel. You wouldn't be apt to find a good heathen, but this man here certainly measures up because we're told that they're none good. Now, how could God get the gospel to Cornelius? There were insurmountable barriers. The church at this time was entirely Israelite. And for the first eight years, it was exclusively that. Paul had said to the Jew first, and it had gone to him chronologically first. Now, the Christians went to the temple. They still observed many Jewish customs. Under grace, they could do that. They were trusting Christ. Now, when the gospel broke over into Samaria, Jerusalem was surprised but recognized the hand of God. Now, how can the door of the gospel be thrown open to Gentiles? Well, isn't Paul going to be the apostle to the Gentiles? There's no plan of the church to go to the Gentiles. While God was training Paul in the desert of Arabia, God sent Simon Peter to open the door to the Gentiles, and he used the most prejudiced and religious bigot and extremist of that day that you can imagine. Here is a detailed and complicated system, and it must be worked out. And therefore, it's entirely the supervision of the Holy Spirit. Now, only genuine Christian work, friends, directed by the Holy Spirit. None other work amounts to anything. Now, will you notice this man, Cornelius, he was praying. He was not dreaming. He was praying, given a vision. And he dispatches messengers down the coast from Caesarea. It wasn't but a few miles down to Joppa. And the Spirit of God now is going to prepare another man, a human instrument. Now, notice, when he looked on him, verse 4, that is, upon this vision, this man, that came to him, What is it, Lord? And he said unto him, Thy prayers and thine alms are come up for a memorial before God. Now, I'd have you note that there are certain things that do count before God. There's no merit for salvation. 
But God took note of them. And because the man did that, he got the gospel to this man. And I believe today that if there's any man anywhere that can come up to Cornelius, religious-wise, he's going to hear the gospel of the grace of God. God will see that he gets it. Now, will you notice? And now send men to Joppa and call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter. He lodgeth with one Simon a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. He shall tell thee what thou oughtest to do. And they told him to go to the tanner's house. And the odor from those hides down in that vat, I'm telling you, they had no problem finding the tanner's house in that day. Now, when the angel which spake unto Cornelius was departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier of them that waited on him continually. And when he had declared all these things unto them, he sent them to Joppa. Now, God's going to prepare Simon Peter. These men are not going to have any trouble finding a place. Verse 9, On the morrow, as they went on their journey and drew nigh unto the city, Peter went up upon the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Now, God's going to have to prepare Simon Peter, and we'll see that it was necessary. Simon Peter did not have the breadth that Paul had. He did not have the background. He didn't have the training at all. But you see, God can use man differently. And this idea today that everybody has to be poured into the same mold for God to use them is, I think, a tremendous mistake. Now, will you notice the thing that's happening? The Spirit of God now is going to prepare Simon Peter's prepared Cornelius now to hear. And on the morrows they went on their journey and drew nigh unto the city. Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Now, he went up about the sixth hour to pray, became very hungry, would have eaten. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance, and he saw heaven open, and a certain vessel descending unto him as it had been a great sheet knit at the four corners and let down to the earth wherein were all manner of four-footed beasts of the earth and wild beasts and creeping things and fowls of the air. Now, this is the thing that there were beasts and there were all kinds of birds and all kinds of bugs. And the Lord tells to him, Rise, Peter, kill, and eat. Now, he's wondering what that means. Because notice what Peter said. But Peter said, Not so, Lord. Isn't it interesting? He calls him Lord, and he doesn't really obey him. He says, No, but he calls him Lord. For I have never eaten anything that's common or unclean. Now, don't miss that. Here is a man that's now on this side of the day of Pentecost. And he's living in a day when whether you eat meat or you don't eat meat makes no difference. And he's not eating meat. He would not eat any of these things at all that were unclean, listed in the Mosaic system. Now, when he said that, he's sincere and he's honest about it. And somebody says, well, he ought to be broad-minded and eat everything. Eat what's set before you, Paul said. Well, may I say to you, under grace, if you don't want to eat, you don't have to. And if you want to eat, you can. The trouble about a great many people today is they say, well, I'm going to follow the same procedure. I'm not going to eat. But they try to put everybody else under it. My friend, under grace, 
You can eat meat or not eat meat. That's your business under grace. Just the way God leads you about matters like this, because after all, these things won't bring you to the Lord. They may give you indigestion if you eat certain things, but it certainly won't bring you to the Lord nor interfere with your relationship with him. Now the voice spoke unto him again the second time, What God hath cleansed, that call not thou common. He says to Simon Peter, What God's called clean, don't you call it unclean. You can eat anything here. God's told you to do that. And now notice what happens. This was done thrice, and the vessel was received up again unto heaven. Now, this man is wondering what it's all about here. Now, verse 17. Now, while Peter doubted in himself what this vision which he had seen should mean, behold, the man which was sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house, and they stood before the gate and called and asked whether Simon which was surnamed Peter, were lodged there. While Peter thought on the vision, the Spirit said unto him, Behold, three men seek thee. Arise, therefore, get thee down, go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Now, Simon Peter is to go to Caesarea, asking no questions. Then Peter went down to the men which were sent unto him from Cornelius, and said, Behold, I am he whom ye seek. What's the cause whereof ye are come? And now they give the explanation. They said, Cornelius, the centurion, a just man, one that feareth God and of good report among all the nation of the Jews, was warned from God by a holy angel to send for thee into his house and to hear of thee. Then called he them in and lodged them. And on the morrow Peter went away with them, and certain brethren from Joppa accompanied him. Now, there's quite a little delegation going up. Now, will you notice, And the morrow after they entered into Caesarea, and Cornelius waited for them, and had called together his kinsmen and near friends. You see, he had quite a bit of influence. And he wanted his friends and his relatives to share in this. And so he went in, and as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. You see, Cornelius is a pagan. He's heathen. <laughs> He's told to send for this man, so my, he must be somebody. And so he falls down to worship Simon Peter. Now, notice what Peter said. This is interesting, friend. Simon Peter would never have let you kiss his big toe, I'll tell you that. He just wouldn't permit it. Listen to this. But Peter took him up, saying, Stand up. I myself also am a man. I'm just a man. Peter reached down and lifted him up, you see. And he said, stand up. I'm a man. I like the way he did that. Now, notice what he does here in Caesarea. And he broke, actually, the first rule of homiletics in his message. He offers an apology. Will you notice this, what he says here? And as he talked with him, he went in and found many that were come together. Simon Peter still doesn't quite understand, and he's at the home of a Gentile. Listen to him now. He said unto them, Ye know how that it is unlawful thing for a man that's a Jew to keep company or come unto one of another nation. Now, friends, that's not a nice way to begin a message. That's not very friendly. But God hath showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. My friend, that is an insult. 
Simon Peter says, if you really want to know how I felt about this, well, I didn't want to come. I've never been in the home of a Gentile before, and I just haven't been in where it's unclean. (laughs) May I say to you, ladies listening today, and those of you that are housekeepers, have a home, suppose you have a visitor, and the visitor comes in and says, my, what a dirty house you have. May I say to you, you wouldn't feel very friendly to that individual. That's, in substance, what Simon Peter is saying at this particular time. What a tremendous thing it is. Now will you notice, I begin reading at verse 29. Therefore came I unto you without gainsaying, as soon as I was sent for. I ask therefore for what intent you sent for me. Now this is what amazes me. Why would Simon Peter ask that question? I would think he'd open up the conversation immediately about the Lord Jesus. But do you notice he doesn't? This man is waiting for the leading of the Spirit, friends. He's not rushing into this. This ought to be a lesson to many of us today who are rather brusque or crude even in our witnessing. We find it difficult to witness, so we are very... Generally, when we do it, we do it very amateurish, and we do it abruptly, and we do it in a way that sometimes offends, and we ought not to witness like that, of course. We ought to be led of the Spirit of God. I personally believe that the finest kind of evangelism is prayer evangelism. And I mean by that, to begin praying for an individual... Then the day comes when you need to put legs on your prayer. Then ask God if you're praying for a loved one, if you're praying for a friend or a stranger you've met, ask God to lead you. And friends, I know that he'll lead you. Don't just do this on your own, because if you do it in the flesh, of course you're going to fail. Let God be the one to lead you. Well, I wonder if I may right here repeat something I have told before. But when I was a student in college, I was very zealous to want to witness for God. But again, I was rather timid and shy about it. And I, very frankly, wanted to be sure I had leading. Formerly, when I was in college, I did a great deal of hitchhiking because I didn't have money to pay my bus fare or train fare. So I was out on the highway, and a man went by me in a Model A Ford, a brand new one, by the way, and he drove down, I suppose, 50 yards past me, stopped, and then he motioned for me to come. And I came rushing up with my little suitcase, and he said to me, get in. He said, I just wanted to look you over before I picked you up. He said, I don't want to pick up anyone without first looking them over. He introduced himself. He was a salesman for several of these drug concerns. And he asked me, he said, where are you going? I said, to Memphis. He said, well, I'm going there, and I'd be glad to take you. He said, provided you don't mind me stopping at several drug stores on the way, I'll be stopping there to get orders. So we rode along and talked about everything under the sun, and I was praying under my breath. I said, Lord, I'd like to 
say something to this man, but you'll have to open the door for me. I'm not going to open the door for the simple reason that he might open the door here if I mentioned anything about religion and say, what have I got in here, some religious nut, and turn me out way down on the highway somewhere where I didn't want to be turned out, and I'd have difficulty. So I very frankly said to him, just answering his questions, and so we rode along. We talked about, I think, everything under the sun. He'd stop at several drugstores on the way. At lunchtime, he asked me, was I hungry? And I was, and he bought my lunch. He said to me, I get awfully tired of driving. Do you drive? I said, yes. He said, would you like to? I said, I sure would. So I got in and started driving. And we rode along, talked about different things. He was very much relaxed. He had mentioned this thing and that thing. Finally, we ran out of conversation. We were about 60 miles out of Memphis, riding along, and there came a lull in the conversation because, as I said, we'd just run out of conversation. And I was praying all the time. I said, Lord, we're getting near Memphis. There hadn't been a door open. I'm not going to open it. I don't want to be put out. I said, if you want me to witness, then you open the door for me. Well, we rode along, I guess, 10 minutes. And finally, he just spoke out of a clear sky. He says, you know, my wife and I went to church yesterday. And he laughed and looked at me and laughed, and I laughed too. And he said, you know, I don't go very often. And he said, you know, that preacher said the funniest thing. He said that Jesus was coming back to this earth again. He said, what do you think about that? Well, I told him, friends, from then on in, I told him what I thought about it, and I was able to talk to him about the first coming of Christ. And I said to him, fine, I said, the second coming of Christ means nothing to you. But I said, it's the first coming, that you've got to come to Christ to accept what he did for you the first time, if you'd have any interest at all in his second coming. And this man was, very frankly, wide open. And he actually took me to the dormitory where I stayed at college, and he parked there, and he said, I want to see you again. And so I just blurted right out. I said, wouldn't you like to accept Christ as your Savior? He said, I sure would. Well, I said, sitting right here, you can accept him. He said, I will. And so we bowed our heads in prayer, and I prayed and asked him to pray, and he accepted Christ. May I say to you, I'll be honest with you, I would never open my mouth. If the Lord hadn't somehow or another prompted him to open up a conversation, I think, friends, we need to be spirit-led. And you know, the first sermon I preached when I was ordained in Nashville, I looked down the congregation, and there sat that man and his wife. He just sat down there smiling. Afterward, I said to him, I said, look, I'd like for you to join this church. He said, I've already joined a Baptist church over on the other part of town. And he says, it's a good church, and I'm not about to move over here with you. And he didn't. But it was wonderful, friends, to have that experience. I think that we ought to be very careful in our witnessing. That's my idea. And this man, Simon Peter, is not blurting out saying anything. He's led by the Spirit of God. He said to him, why in the world have you called for me? Why'd you send for me? Verse 30, now, and Cornelius said, Four days ago I was fasting until this hour. At the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, thy prayer is heard. Thine alms are had in remembrance in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa, call hither Simon, whose surname is Peter. He's lodged in the house of one Simon a tanner by the seaside, who when he cometh, 
shall speak unto thee. Immediately, therefore, I sent to thee, and thou hast well done that thou art come. Now, therefore, are we all here present before God to hear all things that are commanded thee of God? In other words, Cornelius said, I don't know why I sent for you. God wants me to send for you. You must have a message. And now will you notice the message of Simon Peter? Then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. What a marvelous thing that we have in the conversion of this man here. Notice now what happened. But in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. The word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ, he's Lord of all. That word I say ye know, which was published throughout all Judea, and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. Now you see Cornelius and those assembled are living in Caesarea, knew certain basic facts about Jesus of Nazareth, about what had been happening the past three or four years in that land. Now, listen to Simon Peter. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they slew and hanged on a tree. Now notice, him God raised up the third day and showed him openly. Now, this man, Simon Peter, notice what he does. He presents the facts concerning Jesus Christ. He says, now, there are certain things that you already know. And they probably knew about the death of Jesus. But now he says... This is what happened, that he died on the cross, and God raised him the third day and showed him openly. Now, this was the message, this is the gospel, and nothing short of that. Now, this past Christmas, I have noted that a great many have sent out Christmas cards and messages on which there is this little quotation, one solitary life. And now it's a very fine thing that's been written, no question about that. And it is very readable. But there is a strange omission there. It's a solitary omission. The most important fact is not recorded. This records the fact that he died, that Jesus died. But it doesn't even mention his resurrection. It even mentions his burial. But it's left out his resurrection. Friends, there wasn't a sermon preached in the New Testament, and especially in the book of Acts, that did not mention the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the very heart of the gospel. And until that's preached, my friend, you haven't heard the gospel. Jesus died, buried, rose again. That's a historical fact, and your relationship to it determines your eternal destiny. For he died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried, rose again the third day according to the Scriptures.
Now listen to Simon Peter as he continues in verse 41. Not to all the people, but unto witnesses chosen before of God, even to us, who did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that it is he which was ordained of God to be the judge of quick and dead. To him give all the prophets witness that through his name whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. My friends, I don't criticize Simon Peter very much, as you know. I rejoice in him, and I tell his weaknesses and his faults with great joy, because he's so human, and he's so like another fellow that I know very well by the name of McGee. But the important thing is, he preached the gospel, friends, and this is the gospel. Whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. And until you do that, you haven't done anything, friends, not for God. Notice what happened now. While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Spirit fell on them which heard the word. And they of the circumcision which believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Spirit. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then answered Peter, Can any man forbid water that they should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Spirit as well as we? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then prayed they him to tarry certain days. Now, this has been labeled the Gentile Pentecost. Peter is astonished here that the Gentiles, too, have received the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit's been poured out upon them. It is made audible by their speaking in tongues. Now, this had a purpose in that day. As you can see, I think the tongues were more of an evidence to Simon Peter and the other apostles that God would save Gentiles, because Simon Peter's going to come back to this in the next chapter, and he'll come back to it in the 15th chapter, that this was the evidence that they had been saved. Not that they had been baptized by the Spirit, but that they had been saved. And these that were the Jews in that day could not believe that Gentiles were going to be saved in spite of what the Lord had told them. Now the Gentiles in Cornelius' house are baptized, and that was a tremendous moving of the Spirit of God. Again, I call your attention to the fact that there are three representative conversions. The Ethiopian eunuch, Saul of Tarsus, and Cornelius. The Ethiopian eunuch is a son of Ham. Saul of Tarsus, a son of Shem. Cornelius, the Roman centurion, a son of Japheth. And the Holy Spirit moves in each case using the Word of God and the man of God. And then there came into existence a Son of God through faith in Jesus Christ. 